We turn this evening to Ezekiel chapter 18. I invite you to turn there, Ezekiel 18. looking tonight at what sometimes is referred to as the wellment offer of the gospel and God's promise to save sinners. In Ezekiel 18, God proclaims that his pleasure is not in the death of the wicked, but that they turn and live. The context here in Ezekiel 18 is actually uh, found in the opening couple of verses, Ezekiel 18, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? And so we're using this proverb, they're saying that we're in captivity and we're suffering because of what our parents did, what they did in past generations. And God comes to say, no, 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 it's not just what your parents did, you have your own sin." And if you turn from that sin to me, you will live. And so we want to pick it up halfway through at verse 19. Ezekiel 18, at verse 19, God's word. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should, live, that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty, And the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair, and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed... And does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgression which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent. Turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? 
For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Let's turn in the Forms and Prayers book to the Canons of Dort. To the Canons of Dort, page 272 in that Forms and Prayers book. We're in the third and fourth head of doctrine, dealing with human corruption or total depravity and with what we call irresistible grace or conversion to God in the way it occurs, as the title says. And we're at Articles 8 and 9. We've noted that God has complete freedom in revealing the gospel to whom he will and when he will and where he will. But how are we to think about this gospel preached? When we think about this great God of election and God who chooses some to be saved, what about his gospel? Is he serious and promising salvation to all who come to him? Well, Article 8, the serious call of the gospel reads, Nevertheless, all who are called through the gospel are called seriously. For seriously and most genuinely, God makes known in his word what is pleasing to him, that those who are called should come to him. Seriously, he also promises rest for their souls and eternal life to all who come to him. And believe. And then Article 9, human responsibility for rejecting the gospel. The fact that many who are called through the ministry of the gospel do not come and are not brought to conversion must not be blamed on the gospel, nor on Christ who is offered through the gospel, nor on God who calls them through the gospel and even bestows various gifts on them, but on the people themselves who are called. That's where the blame has to fall. Some in self-assurance do not even entertain the word of life. Others do entertain it, but do not take it to heart. And for that reason, after the fleeting joy of a temporary faith, they relapse. Others choke the seed of the word with the thorns of life's cares and with the pleasures of the world and bring forth no fruits. This our Savior teaches in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. Let's bow our heads together before Lord and ask for his blessing. God in heaven, we come before you as sinners, grateful that there is a Savior, praying that you will forgive us, that you will pardon us, that you will cleanse our hearts and make us clean on the inside, that we might bring forth good works and good fruit. And we pray, Lord, that you do your work in us tonight by your word as we come, Lord, to this subject matter. We pray for the grace that it might be preached truthfully and in accordance with your word, that we would know you as you revealed yourself in your word. In Jesus' name, We ask for your help, for we need it. Amen. We've been studying now for some weeks um, the sovereign grace of God, right? We looked at unconditional election, that God, out of the whole mass of sinful humanity, has chosen some to be saved. And we saw um, that God sent his beloved son to die for those ones, the elect, the chosen, whom he would save. And now we're, we're coming to this this topic that, that God now sends his spirit to the ones he chose and the ones Christ died for, the spirit is going to be sent or is being sent to draw them effectually to the Lord and to save them. And so we see at every step that God is completely sovereign in salvation. But, but one frequent and recurring argument used against these teachings back in the days of the, of when the canons were written and still being used today is this idea that if you believe this, that God sovereignly chooses some to be saved, that Christ died for these ones, that the Spirit 
effectually works only in these ones, then you can't preach the gospel freely to everyone. You can't sincerely call all people to come to Christ and tell them if they do, they'll be saved. And so it's suggested that the Reformed are sometimes weak in terms of evangelism and missions because they embrace these kinds of ideas. If you tell a reprobate person that he'll be saved if he believes, then you're lying to him because God has no intention to save him, some people say. It's argued that you can't seriously and genuinely say to the non-elect that God has any desire for their salvation, since clearly God has desired not to save them. He hasn't chosen them. And so it's alleged that the God we proclaim is God who's insincere. It's a God who has duplicity. He's two-faced. He says, come to me, but he hasn't chosen them, so he doesn't really want them to come to him. He doesn't intend to save them. And so the argument goes... And some would even suggest that the God that we preach then is kind of a cruel monster who with one hand holds out salvation, with the other hand he snatches it back and says, no, not for you. But that's not right. That's not right. And if we ourselves begin to think that because believing in this God of election that we are somehow inhibited now to preach the gospel, that we should be quite measured in any concern for the lost, then, then we have fallen prey to, to false ideas. Tonight we see in the Bible that we're called to embrace two truths without in this lifetime being able to fully reconcile them or to know the full mysteries of, of God's being and will. We're called to embrace God's sovereignty, that he's the Lord of salvation, that he truly saves sinners, and he has chosen some to save, and he saves them in Christ completely. And the other truth, that God is most serious and most sincere as he causes the gospel to be preached to so many people, even those who are not elect, and yet he means to them, come and I will give you salvation. And both of those are to be held together according to the word of God. Let's consider tonight two points. First of all, that God's promise, his gospel promise is sincere. And then secondly, that God's interest, that God's interest in the salvation of sinners is sincere. God's promise is sincere. God's interest is sincere. Now, we, we distinguish between uh, a universal general gospel summons and the effectual summons. When we speak of God's effectual summons of the gospel, God's effectual calling, the New Testament often uses the idea of calling to mean not just that God announces salvation, but that he actually draws people to Christ powerfully, effectively. That's irresistible grace, as we'll see the Lord willing in the weeks to come. But that effectual summons is not the limitation of how far the gospel spread. There are many people whom God is not pleased to effectually draw to himself by the powerful operation of the Spirit, giving them a new heart. And yet, the gospel is to be preached to them. It's to be preached promiscuously, broadly. I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew 11 for a moment and and see at least one instance in Scripture where we see both the sovereignty of God in that 
effectual calling and the mercy of Christ in the general summons put together. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, in fact, the hymn we just sang was obviously based in part on what we read in Matthew eleven twenty-eight and following. But if you back up to Matthew eleven twenty-one, Christ begins to rebuke. Uh, actually, Matthew eleven twenty, it says that Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. And then Jesus prays at verse 25. Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Well, Christ has some some strong proclamations here, doesn't he, of God's sovereign power and authority to open blind hearts and to give revelation to whom he pleases. Christ speaks both of, of the Father's will and purpose, that he's hidden these things from the wise and learned. He's revealed them to babes. And Christ speaks of his, his own will here, that the only ones who, who know the Father are the ones to whom the Son wills to reveal him. But no sooner does Christ speak of, of this sovereign character of the Lord in salvation and these things that we might term irresistible grace, then Jesus says at Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are labian, la, excuse me, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I think that's a very interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? That Christ can freely thank God for his sovereignty and revealing the gospel to whom he pleases. And yet he can at the same time announce to all who will know themselves to be weary and burdened to the Jews of that day who are suffering beneath the load of the pharisaical laws and couldn't meet the demands, to the Jews who who faced up to God's law given to Moses and couldn't fulfill it, to those who who were saying, my sin is too great, I can't keep all righteousness, I am weary and I am burdened. And Christ said, for all of you, for all who will say, I am a needy sinner, come to me and I will give you rest. And Christ, he felt no limitation, no inhibitions in proclaiming that openly and freely to all who would hear. He wasn't bound to say, well, this is true for the elect, but not true for the elect. And I have to distinguish here. Some of you should hear this. The rest of you shouldn't listen. But Christ openly declared it. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, all of you, and I will give you rest. Now, the Arminian... Sometimes, and sisters, a contradiction in our confession. We can't, on the one hand, say that God chooses certain people, and then on the other hand say that the gospel is to be seriously proclaimed to all people. But here we see in Matthew 11 that that issue is not really with the canons of Dort, but it's with the very words of the Lord Jesus. Christ preaches Christ here, and he preaches him freely. He's not constrained in his gospel summons, but he calls all. Right after he's proclaimed the very sovereignty of God in salvation to reveal to some and not to others, he, with 
on unfettered summons, freely proclaims, come to me and find rest. And so the canons of Dort in Article 8, they say, nevertheless, all who are called through the gospel are called seriously. Jesus in Matthew 11 is not playing games. Even when those who hear that word of Jesus are reprobate, they're not chosen for salvation, it doesn't make what Jesus proclaims to them to be less true. Christ is deadly serious. Come to me and I will give you rest. I'll remove your sin. I will restore you to God. I'll break the power of sin in your life. I will give you peace and joy and abundant life. And so we as a church may may follow this example of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Father, we thank you that you in your sovereignty reveal the gospel in hearts that you draw sinners as you will and that we may go out and freely say, come to Christ and you will find rest. Maybe we've had it in life that we've dealt with, all of us have, I'm sure, dealt with people who proved to be not very truthful or sincere. We, at least I don't like getting scammed. And so... Sometimes when it seems to be too good to be true, we know that it usually is, so we ask people questions, we nail them down, and, and we try to get things in writing, and we don't just take the, the first word someone gives us. But then sometimes we come to God's word and we deal that way. And we think God might be like kind of a shifty salesman, and we need to, we need to really probe him. Do you mean it? Are you serious? But you see, God, God is never untruthful. And what he says here, he means. And he's not playing games. And he's not some grotesque monster who, who, who offers one thing and then takes it away and finds pleasure in doing that. And anyone who caricatures our proclamation of God in those terms is, is not being truthful or honest. Jesus says in John 6, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And we may tell every sinner that if you come to Jesus Christ, In true faith and repentance, you will not be disappointed. You will not be turned away. They say, well, I don't know if I'm elect. And we say, no, 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 that's not not how this goes. You are a sinner. Christ is a savior for the world. God bids you come to him and find rest, so do that. And when you've done that, then you'll discover you're elect. In Acts 16.31, Paul and Silas proclaimed the gospel to the Philippian jailer with absolute truthfulness. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. They don't have to first stop and ask God whether the Philippian jailer happens to be chosen of God. They preach the gospel to him. Believe and you'll be saved. In Ezekiel 18, the word of the prophet comes to the Jews in captivity. Some of these are going to perish in their sin. Perish eternally. Not elect. Yet the word to all of them is, turn from your sin and you will live. Repent and you will live. Maybe we sometimes wonder if our sins are too great or if this gospel is really for us or... We're not to doubt the word of God, but to believe what God has spoken. And then go forward as a church to proclaim what God has spoken. And to proclaim it to all. God's sovereignty is not an obstacle to the preaching of the gospel. And the revelation of election, which is often revealed in the scripture, for the comfort of believers. That you may know that your salvation is rooted in eternity. is not a hindrance 
to the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified and the summons to repentance and the promise of rest to everyone we meet. And so, that means that no one can blame the gospel for their unbelief. In Ezekiel 18, someone were blaming God. It's not fair. You're not fair. We're, we're suffering for the sins of our parents. You don't deal justly with us. And, and some would, would want maybe to blame the gospel. Well, if it's a gospel that in the end only saves the elect, then, then God, you haven't dealt with me righteously. It's your fault. And yet, Article 9 of our confession does a good job, doesn't it, in, in saying the fact that many are called through the gospel, the fact that many who are called through the gospel do not come and are not brought to conversion... It can't be blamed on the gospel. It can't be blamed on Christ. It can't be blamed on God. But it's to be blamed upon the sinners. Reprobate can't say on the last day, well, I'm not guilty of rejecting you because you, God, didn't choose me. No, God will say, I told you, come to me and you'll be saved. And you rejected that. Article 9 goes on to speak of the parable of the sower. And, and what's remarkable in that parable, you remember that famous parable of a farmer who scattered seed and and there's different places it fell on the wayside birds plucked it away or on the shallow rocky soil and it sprang up and then withered away or among the thorns and it grew up and then was choked by the thorns and then in good soil it produced a harvest and what's interesting of course is that it was the same seed that was sown in all those places it wasn't that and that's a parable really of Jesus Christ he's scattering his seed And it's not that he dips in his bag and gets some good seed. And then he dips in his bag and gets some bad seed. It's the same seed. It's the same gospel being sown. But the problem is not with the seed, it's with the soil. It's with the soil. The seed is good. The promise is good. The truthfulness of the promise is good. The problem are hearts that won't receive. But because the seed is good, we can go so far as to say that the reprobate has just as much warrant to believe the gospel as does the elect. The reprobate has just as much warrant to believe the gospel as the elect because it's the same gospel that's preached. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He is a savior for sinners freely given by God. So God's promise, God's promise of the gospel is sincere. But then secondly tonight, I would invite you to notice that God's interest in the salvation of sinners is sincere. Going a bit further this evening, I can point out that sometimes it's thought that the gospel must be preached to all men, but that God's heart is not really in it. And there's a good question to be asked. Does God desire in any sense the salvation of the reprobate? Does God in any sense desire the salvation of all men? Well, I think the scriptures seem to show us that not just must the gospel be preached to all men, but that this call of the gospel actually does in some way express a loving kindness, a good intention, a well-intentioned desire of God to save sinners. Article 8 
says, for seriously and most genuinely, God makes known in his word what is pleasing to him, that those who are called should come to him. Ezekiel asked, or God asked through Ezekiel the prophet, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am am I not pleased when they turn from their way and live? I think God does in some sense, desire the salvation of all men. I think those who say that God has no good intentions towards the reprobate, God has no good intentions to the ones he hasn't chosen to save, is is mistaken. To say that the gospel is only to be preached to the reprobate so they'll be condemned by it, I think misrepresents the way the Bible represents the preaching of the gospel. Truly, God does use the preaching of the gospel to condemn people ultimately, right? Because we're all going to be judged based on what we heard, right? And, and if we reject the gospel, then on the last day, the, the preaching we've heard will be what indicts us. And God even uses the preaching of the word to harden hearts sometimes, As his judgment upon those who refuse and refuse and reject, then the very preaching of the gospel can can make the heart harder against God. But all of that being true, it doesn't mean that God has no good intentions in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, we distinguish between God's will of decree, what he's decreed eternally, and his will of precept, what, what he desires. We don't claim that the gospel preached... Expressing God's goodwill or favor towards sinners means that he's decreed to save them all. But we do believe that God has made known what pleases him, that sinners should turn and live. And so there is a compassion of God toward all the lost. And, and a minister of the gospel may have a compassion for all men, regardless whether they're elect or reprobate. And of course, he can't know. Think of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. It's, it's rather remarkable. In Romans 8, you know, the Apostle had come to that, that great height of proclaiming the, uh, the golden chain of salvation. That uh, Verse 28 and following, uh, verse 29, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. What should we say to all these things? That's Romans 8. And then in Romans 9 through 11, he's going to deal now with the doctrine of election. All right? And, and he's going to say that not all who are Israel are really Israel. That many of the Jews, by ethnicity, are not Jews spiritually, and they're being cut off. And yet the Apostle Paul, though he's going to speak in the strongest terms, right? Romans 9 through 11 is, is sort of a, you'd say, the classic passage, the most extended discussion of election reprobation. But it begins how? Romans 9, verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's taking an oath before the Lord. He's swearing this that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, who 
according to the flesh who are Israelites. Paul's not going to argue God's unfair in his election and reprobation. The fact that many who are Israel by the flesh are not elect. And yet knowing that and submitting to that and proclaiming that about the sovereign God, Paul begins by saying, I, before the face of God, declare to you, my heart breaks for my fellow Jews who don't know Jesus Christ and who die in their sin. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Is Paul in any sense represent the heart of God as an apostle of Jesus Christ writing what we know to be the inspired word of God can can we not think that the apostle Paul is representing to us something of the very heart of our God maybe it's helpful to back up and think for a moment about not now the the blessing of the gospel preached but just about what we call the natural blessing is about sunshine and rain why, why does God send his sunshine and rain upon the, the wicked as well as the righteous? Is it only because God cannot form clouds to only rain on the righteous and not the wicked and that get too complicated? Or, you know, what God did for the, the Israelites, you know, darkness on Egypt, the Egyptians, but light on Israel. You know, that's too hard to work now that we're a mixed society of church and world. Is that the reason? It doesn't seem to be the case. Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But again, some might say, well, God only sends them these blessings so he can curse them by them on the last day, hold them accountable, that despite the blessings, they didn't turn to him. Well, he will do that, but is that the reason he sends them these things? Is that, is that God's only intention so that he might have more cause to damn them? Luke 6, Jesus says, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And so Jesus teaches us that in God's display of these so-called natural blessings upon mankind, it comes from a heart of God who is merciful, who is kind to all that he has made. And when we see that now and learn of God's disposition towards even wicked men, and we move to the gospel, are we to assume that God has no kindness or mercy? in the proclamation of the gospel to sinners. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his way and live? For I take no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. In the gospel, God is making known what is pleasing to him, that sinners should come to him. It's a God who desires salvation. God who stands ready to save. And he's a God who in this gospel reveals something of his compassion to sinful people. Speaks to covenant people through Ezekiel. People who are dying in their sin. Like I said, many of these people presumably were reprobate. Those who return from 
from Babylon are a small number, right? The, the church is not strong. There seem to be many who've lost interest in the Lord, and yet God summons them and expresses his desire for their salvation. Or you think of Jesus, right? As he laments over Jerusalem at the end of Matthew 23, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Christ weeping over Jerusalem as we saw recently. Those who oppose what's often termed the well-meant offer the gospel insist it can't be well-meant. God can't desire the salvation of all because clearly he didn't desire their salvation since he reprobated them. And to say that God elects and reprobates and yet desires the salvation of all would involve God in some great impossible contradiction. It would make him illogical. It would make him Subject to some duality, he would be schizophrenic. Does he desire their salvation or not desire their salvation? Robert Dabney, a Southern Presbyterian from many, many years, many years ago, wrote a, a famous essay on this whole topic. And he, in the midst of the essay, he uses a, an illustration from, from the life of George Washington, where the biography of Washington reports that, that George Washington signed a death warrant for Major Andre for his treasonous acts that jeopardized the safety of the nation. And yet Washington had great compassion and pity upon the man. And Abney says, you know, if somebody was standing by and Washington says this is very hard to do, you know. I have such pity and compassion for this man. And yet he signed the death warrant. If somebody was standing there and said, oh, you don't have any pity. What kind of disingenuous is that? That you say you have pity, you signed his death warrant. Well, it would be ridiculous to anyone who was there. They would be recognizing that as commander-in-chief, though Washington had compassion upon the man, yet for a, a higher reason, for the well-being of the nation, he had to sign this death warrant. Dabney asked, is there something like that in God? Now, now we recognize immediately that this analogy begins to break down very quickly because, because our tension in our hearts is bound up with the fact that we can't do what we want to do. I, I really want to help out this person, but I don't have the money. I don't have the time. We're, we're bound up in these conflicts of lack of power, right? We're not God, and, and God is never conflicted in that way. But Dabney suggests if in the human heart there can be a complexity, that in some sense you desire one thing, but for a higher end you desire and do another thing, in the infinite being of God, are we to assume that we know precisely that these two things can't be true, that God reprobates some and yet in some sense desires that they turn from their sin and live? By the way, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that sometimes the Arminians might be tempted to charge us with this kind of duplicity in God. And we say, well, God might desire their salvation, but for a higher reason, 
choose not to save them as he wants to manifest his glory and reprobation. But you see, the Arminians do exactly the same thing. You say to the Arminians, so you believe God loves everyone? Yes, yes, we believe God loves everyone. So you believe that the Gospels be preached to everyone because God wants them to be saved? Yes, yes, they say. Well, then you say, well, then why doesn't God save them? And they say, well, God does everything he can do for them without violating their free will. God goes as far as he can go without violating their free will because he wants to have a relationship with them, a, a free, loving relationship. And so you say, God desires the salvation of all, but he chooses for another reason not to save them all? Well, that sounds an awful lot like what we just said. You see, our God is a glorious being. And the Bible tells us two things, that God is sovereign in salvation, and that God, in some sense, has compassion Upon all men, he in some way has a loving kindness and benevolence towards all that he has made. God makes clear in Ezekiel 18 that he desires salvation, but not salvation apart from repentance. As we stand before all these truths in God's word, we have to let God be God. It's not our calling in our finite minds to finally reconcile everything God says about himself and to know the logical cohesion of everything. But it's our calling as God's people to bow before the word and to embrace every word he gives us. And so let me end with a little quotation here from an article on this subject. And then it ends with a quotation from Calvin. Actually, it comes from Calvin's commentary on Ezekiel 18. But the writer says, the best and wisest course at this point is to admit that though the tension or inconsistency here is apparent, it is ultimately not real. Though the mystery of the full harmony and coherence of God's will and purpose may finally lie beyond our grasp or reach, we must be content to follow the teaching of Scripture wherever it leads If the scriptures teach unconditional election, we should affirm this teaching. If the scriptures teach the well-meant offer, the well-meant gospel offer, we should affirm this teaching as well. That we are unable to see through the consistency of these things says something about the limits of our grasp and understanding. But it is conceit on our part to insist that because we cannot fully comprehend it, it is not true. As is often the case, Calvin offers us wise counsel in this area. Here's Calvin, John Calvin's quote from his Ezekiel lectures. Although, therefore, God's will is simple, yet great variety is involved in it as far as our senses are concerned. Besides, it is not surprising that our eyes should be blinded by intense light so that we cannot certainly judge how God wishes all to be saved and yet has devoted all the reprobate to eternal destruction and wishes them to perish. While we look now through a glass darkly, we should be content with the measure of our own intelligence. When we shall be like God and see him face to face, then what is now obscure will become plain. May God grant us as his people to embrace the Lord as he's revealed himself in all the scriptures. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you, confessing 
that we desire to know, that we work to understand. And yet, Lord, we bump up against our humanness, our frailty, our creatureliness. And we, God, shall never know you as you know yourself. We're also inhibited, Lord, by our sinfulness, which sets blinders upon us and makes it difficult for us to see clearly. We know, Lord, you have not revealed all things to us. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Father, grant us the grace to go as far as your word goes, and yet to rest content where your word stops, to receive the revelation you've given, and not to cancel out one verse with another, but to humble ourselves before you. Help us to know you through Jesus Christ. Drive away the lies of the evil one, that none of us should be fearful in coming to you, but that we might hear your gospel summons and rejoice to come, knowing that you are true to your word, and Christ stands ready to receive. And may we, Lord, as your church, then also be faithful to preach the glad tidings, to have compassion upon the lost, to share in the apostles' heart that breaks over those who are dying in their sin. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray you grant these things. Amen.